Welcome to the Harvard Center for International Development's Road to Jam 23 Climate and Development Podcast. My name is Aineng, and I'm a graduate student at Harvard University and the CID Student Ambassador. CID's Road to Jam 23 series precedes and helps launch CID's Global Empowerment Meeting, Growing in a Green World, on May 10th and 11th. At CID, we work across a global network of researchers and practitioners to build, convene, and deploy talent to address the world's most pressing challenges. On our road to Jam 23, we strive to elevate and learn more voices from the countries on the front lines of the climate crisis, and will feature important learnings from the leaders who will be active participants at Jam 23. This week, we are joined by Joshua Shub and Juan Carlos Monterrey Gomez. Joshua is a principal director for technology and innovation, and the director for Day One Project at the Federation of American Scientists. He has worked with various public sector and international organizations, developing innovation strategies, conducting mixed methods program and impact evaluations, as well as researching and developing innovation policy. One is a vice chair for implementation of the United Nations Climate Convention, director of Geoversity School for Biocultural Leadership, and an inaugural scholar at the Obama Foundation. In 2021, as lead climate negotiator for Panama, he led the youngest delegation in history to represent the country at the United Nations climate negotiations. The average age of the Panamanian negotiators was 29. Joshua and Wen, thank you for being here with us today. Wen, to get us started, can you explain a bit of your motivation to work in climate, and maybe offer an explanation for what we mean by climate adaptation? Thank you so much, Anin, for the invitation to be here today. It's my pleasure. So I was born in 1992. That same year, the UN Climate Convention was established with the goal of cutting carbon emissions and stabilizing the global climate system. Growing up, power outages were frequent, potable water was limited, and droughts were the norm. I was born and raised in El Pajaro de Pese, a rural community at the heart of Panama's dry corridor and one of the hottest regions of our country. I did not even know what climate change was when I was a child, but I grew up facing its ever-increasing impacts. What I knew for sure is that we were left on our own. I was fortunate enough to get a scholarship to study in the United States, and I met Josh during my undergraduate studies at Tulane University. He was actually one of the professors for my introduction to international development course, where many topics were covered, including climate change. That was probably the first time I started connecting the dots. But honestly, back then I was still interested in investment banking, and I wanted to make a lot of money, so I didn't really dive deep into the issue. However, everything clicked once I got my first job in Panama at the Ministry of Environment, and I was tasked with digesting the IPCC reports. I could not believe what I was reading. I finally understood clearly why my family and my community suffer so much during our dry seasons. The thing that I honestly could not understand was why, after so many years of global commitments, we were still on a highway to hell. As the Secretary General so brilliantly described、um, last year, more than 30 years have passed since the UN Climate Convention was established. But on the way, we more than double emissions. 
So my motivation to engage in this work is a function of both my lived experiences, but also the fact that previous generations and our so-called leaders have dropped the ball so low that I honestly believe that the only way forward is a generational shift in global leadership. We need more young people in charge. I am now the implementation vice chair of the convention, and I cannot begin to explain all the barriers, all the gaslighting I still get from you and staff, and that I still get from senior diplomats with my discourage, most people, but in my case, it really fuels me to push even harder and bring more young people to the rooms where our future is being negotiated. I gotta admit also that the appointment of an oil boss as the president of the next round of climate talks must definitely fuel my motivation even more because it is clear that the old guard is not at all invested in actually fixing this. In fact, you know, senior diplomats keeps praising this appointment. On the issue of what climate adaptation actually means, let's step back and think about what I told you about my community. We were living through the impacts of drought. We were living through the impacts of lack of potable water and crop failure. So in that specific situation, climate adaptation basically means taking the steps necessary to keep the promise of life on earth in the communities that we are living. So in my area, which is very dry, climate adaptation looks like introducing drought resistant seeds so that we can ensure food security during the dry season. Climate adaptation also means introducing water harvesting practices so that we can ensure there is water for the animals, for the humans, and for the crops during the dry season. So at the end, climate adaptation is nothing more than adapting everything that we are and everything that we have done as a society to be able to sustain our progress and also the progress of the wider natural ecosystems that we're part of. Thank you so much, Juan. It's great to hear what you're doing so far. And next, Joshua, can you tell us a bit more about your experiences, particularly in working policy? What are some of the most pressing climate adaptation challenges that policymakers face today? Thanks, Aining, and thanks for inviting us to be here. So yeah, my my career and interest, I guess, in climate adaptation and how I've find myself centered in a lot of policy discussions started really after my undergraduate degree. I, I spent a couple years uh, serving as a Peace Corps volunteer, which is really where my first interfacing with the issues related to climate change started. So I didn't have that lived experience that Juan Carlos talked about, but it led me to a pathway to pursue more graduate studies and international development where I primarily was researching issues related to poverty and young people and employment. And through some of that work, I sort of backed into a, a focus in innovation and in, in policy. So I spent a, a, about a decade at Tulane University, which is how I got to know Juan, in a center for social innovation and human-centered design, and started getting really interested in the institutions that sort of govern policy and practices and how might we actually improve their ability to solve problems. And I think this is sort of the tip of the spear with what we see, you know, as, as Juan was alluding to, related to a need for new leadership and new ways of thinking about how we respond to the issues that we're face, facing with the changing climate. So through some of that work, I ended up spending a, a bit of time working with the Obama administration and the Office of Science and Technology Policy and, and got to spend about a year studying how federal 
agencies in the U.S. were thinking about embracing innovation as a way to improve the way that they functioned and, you know, generally trying to be more effective and efficient in how they responded to problems. And so for about the last five years, kind of following some of that work, I've spent my career working in D.C. and engaging with directly with policymakers um, through my, my work at the Federation of American Scientists in thinking about what are strategies and different levers that can be tapped to try to promote and, and create more innovative policy change. So we, for the last couple of years, have worked hand in hand with the Biden administration, helping drive progress across a whole host of science, tech, and innovation related policy areas. And I've most recently been working with the Department of Energy and seen a lot of, had sort of this front row seat in the, the energy transition that's taking place in the U- in the United States right now, following the historic levels of investment and in legislation that's passed over the last couple of years. So a lot of, of my response to this question kind of stems from that perspective. But I think, as I said, Juan started to kind of allude to some of it. And I think it starts with you know, again, to, to restate your question, thinking about the most pressing adaptation challenges that policymakers face, it's really about institutions and their ability to respond to the conditions and the pace at which the world around us is changing. The conversations that are happening just this week in the spring meetings with the World Bank and the IMF, um, hopefully they're exploring new ways of operating because we're still within that Bretton Woods model that was set up many decades ago, and we haven't really adapted our ways of doing business. So I think it kind of starts there in terms of what policymakers are facing and some of the most acute challenges that they're experiencing, because the methods don't really promote innovation and and promote solutions that can help us address issues related to the most vulnerable populations. In addition to that, some of the other most or the biggest issues, I would say, are related to financial resources and resource mobilization. Um, There's still a pretty significant gap in the amount of global climate finance that's actually allocated towards adaptation. Estimates have it around five to 10% of, of the total pot, but even the that's just a percentage of the pot. So I think we have to figure out how to grow the pot. So the UN estimates that by the year 2030, we need at least 70 billion being allocated towards climate adaptation strategies. I think this still seems rather low, And I think it kind of comes back to what Juan was getting at with how we define adaptation. But I think some of what we need to focus on is not just increasing the size of investments, but how we're using them, using investments to create and stimulate demand and create more market incentives inside uh, low to middle income countries, creating markets and market incentives is is difficult. Private equity and, and generating and mobilizing capital to invest in technologies or strategies that could support adaptation, that that should be a key focus, but the business case isn't always there, which makes mobilizing resources challenging. I think this administration in the U.S. has really tried to do some of this. I think there's some frameworks that are being set up. For example, the president announced um, in late 2021, the PREPARE framework, which is sort of his version of PEPFAR, but it aims to provide and then over the next fiscal year, roughly $3 billion to help support adaptation strategies. I think it's a good step from the U.S., but so much more is needed. And again, I think it's more about how we would utilize some of that capital. And then the the other big area that I wanted to call out that I think is just growing in size is particularly in developing settings, the lack of expertise in, work so, in workforce that can help in supporting the clean energy transition. So growing jobs is actually part of that but even just training, retraining, reskilling, you know, this is not just an issue that's in developing settings, but 
currently in the US, we have a huge shortage of skilled workforce, particularly electricians. So ambitious policy can help stimulate demand in industry to take advantage of tax credits, but without a workforce that can actually help implement some of the, the, the necessary technology and the transition that needs to happen, it's going to dramatically slow our progress. And I think it's just exacerbated even more in developing settings. So there aren't enough technical experts, but also to help in things like, as I said before, mobilizing capital and finance. And then really more broadly, I think that building resilience inside developing settings is, is a huge opportunity, but that starts with thinking about what the economic incentives are and how you can actually grow jobs because people at the individual and household level can be more resilient and have a more independent ability to respond to changing climate if they are, are better taken care of. And that starts with having jobs. So I think it's thinking about you know more of those traditional development mechanisms and where and whether they've worked to actually help stimulate job growth. And I don't think that's something we've really been able to do as a broader global development community in helping countries transition without building a, a robust manufacturing and an industrial base. So those are just a few high-level issues that I think we'll spend some more time on in a moment. Thank you, Joshua. And following up on that, for both of you, what do you view as the most important considerations that policymakers need to keep in mind when designing adaptation solutions that are actable and inclusive? And how can policymakers design policies that encourage immediate action while also ensuring long-term effectiveness? So Josh mentioned something that is very important. It has to do with the quality of the institutions that are able or need to be able to respond to these sort of problems. So in terms of my own country, one thing that I have identified as, you know, a real need to develop actionable solutions in terms of adaptation is active listening. And active listening is very important because adaptation is hyper-local. You cannot just replicate a project from one community into another community because there are so many variables that change. There are so many different local practices and traditions. The ecosystems are completely different. So active listening and involving those that are impacted by the climate hazards are probably the most important things that you need to take into account when you start the process of thinking through designing or developing an adaptation solution. However, if there is not a strong institutionality in your government, if there is not trust in your government, if your government is plagued with corruption, the local dwellers, the people that are expected to benefit from these solutions might not really believe anything that you're proposing. When I was at the Ministry of Environment a few years ago, I was tasked with traveling the country to identify those coastal communities that were heavily impacted by sea level rise. And I will get into communities that were literally flooding every single day. However, they refused to even think about reallocation. They refused to even think about the plans that the government was proposing to take them somewhere else because they didn't trust the government. They thought that the government just wanted to kick them out of their territory so that they could bring a hotel, a resort, or something of that sort. So if there is not a strong institution in charge of putting these solutions into place, there is really going to be a, a hard time for the communities to buy in, into these solutions. However, it is, it is also important to point out 
that whatever we develop as an adaptation solution needs to provide incentive for actions. We need to develop adaptation solutions that are in line with the market so that they can actually expand. One of the reasons why I think that only between five to 10% of global climate finance goes to adaptation, as Josh mentioned, is because we haven't gotten to the point in which these solutions are marketable. So I think that's right. And I think just to share maybe one, one con- more concrete example or approach um, that kind of connects what Juan's saying of, of uh, taking local contextualized issues and people that are interfacing with them every day and connecting it back to what policymakers could actually do. So I think it's creating more platforms for engagement between local entrepreneurs, social entrepreneurs, leaders in communities that know the problems firsthand and understand culturally in the context of how to get things done and connecting them back up with high level policymakers. And I think this is something that we've worked on a little bit at the day one project with something that we call a policy accelerator, which we invite around a targeted issue area. We invite contributions from entrepreneurs, social entrepreneurs, nonprofit leaders about how to solve particular problems with policy levers. And then we work directly with contributors to curate their ideas into action-oriented policy that policymakers could embrace. So it's taking ideas directly from experts who are living, breathing the challenges of climate change every day and connecting them directly with policymakers, but grounding it in the actual reality of what it's like to get things done in government. And this has been pretty successful in helping translate big, ambitious, moonshot-level ideas into policy. And we've seen a lot of results, at least in the US context from this model. And then the other thing I was going to mention was just that I think to design policies that are both focused on immediate action and this more longer term effectiveness, I think it's starting to better view things through the lens of an actual innovation pipeline or framework that helps us think across a spectrum of where solutions are needed and for what problem we're trying to solve. So technology and commercialization and more like traditional research and development does this pretty well. And I don't really see it applied quite as much in the global development context. So what I mean here is like, can we take more of a holistic view of what kind what, what problem we're trying to solve, what existing innovations or technologies we have to solve that problem in cases where we don't have enough, how can we leverage investments, research, research dollars to try to stimulate new solutions and then move them through a pipeline to commercialization? We've been pretty successful in the United States in doing this and helping lower the cost of, of solar, of helping you know, deploy some of these large-scale grid modernization projects and a lot of what we're doing now with demonstrations of, of, of new clean energy projects. So I think taking this more of this pipeline level view to different technologies that and where we actually need solutions to climate adaptation could also help promote this longer term vision because it's, it's certainly been successful elsewhere. I actually also have an example that I would like to use for my own country on how when you do not involve the community in the early stages of design, or you do not do active listening to design an adaptation solution. So in Panama, we have the semi-autonomous 
indigenous nation of Gunayala. They are basically based in the Caribbean and it's made up of approximately 350 tiny, beautiful islands in the Caribbean. The indigenous Guna have been living in these islands since the 18th century. However, the sea level rise projections tell us that most likely all of these islands will be underwater if the climate crisis is not under control. There is this specific community called Gardisukduk that is currently going through a relocation process through a government project. However, to get to that point, it literally took a decade of demands of community mobilizations, of international reporting from different news outlets and research institutions. However, what's the solution that the government brought them? They decided to build a city neighborhood in the rainforest lands that is in close proximity to these islands. So the government did not do active listening. The government did not involve the communities in the active design of the houses that now they're going to be living in. Of course, the government is providing a solution and more than 300 families are going to be moving into these houses. However, there is a clear discontent by the indigenous Guna people on the way the project has been pushed forward because the houses that are being built for them are not whatsoever in line with the traditional practices that they have ingrained from their island communities. At my organization, University, we actually did an exercise of designing with some of these communities what would be the perfect house that they could be reallocated to. However, we try to push this design through different spheres of consultation and so forth, but it was not really taken into account by the government. So. Once again, it is really important to engage from early on the beneficiaries or the people that are being impacted by the climate hazards before you even push forth the development or the solution uh, that you're trying to push because otherwise people are not gonna be pleased and people will not trust the institutions or the process that is being carried in order to deliver that solution. One, maybe we can go a bit deeper on this from your experiences. What does climate adaptation look like for vulnerable coastal communities? And can you share some examples of successful adaptation policies that have been implemented in this area? Absolutely, Amy. So when we talk about climate adaptation for vulnerable coastal communities, uh, we're typically talking about implementing measures to increase resilience to climate-related hazards, such as sea level rise, storm surge, and flooding. This can include a wide range of strategies from physical infrastructure improvements to social and economic policies aimed at reducing vulnerability. So in terms of building resilient infrastructure, coastal communities can build seawalls, dikes, and other barriers to protect them against flooding and storm surge, for example, the Netherlands has a long history of building and maintaining dikes and seawalls to protect against sea level rise and storm surges. Another solution are nature-based solutions. So communities can also implement nature-based solutions such as mangrove restoration, beach nourishment, wetland conservation. These natural systems have the capacity to absorb and also dissipate the energy of wave, of storms, and reduce the risk of flooding and erosion. And coastal communities around the world are implementing these programs. Funny enough, there was a controversial proposal last year from the city of Miami to actually ban mangrove. 
Luckily, it was withdrawn by the city of Miami and they are no longer pursuing that very silly ban. Another solution to coastal hazards in terms of climate change is relocation and retreat. For some coastal communities, as is the case of the Gardi Subdu community of Punayala that I was mentioning earlier, the most effective adaptation strategy might be to relocate or to retreat from areas that are particularly vulnerable to climate impacts. In some regions of Canada, there are also some programs that have started doing this. However, and very importantly, we need to consider social and economic policy. At the end, you know, climate adaptation, it's also about poverty reduction. Climate, climate adaptation is also about reducing inequality. It's also about addressing those historical inequities that have plagued vulnerable communities for the entire history of humankind. So what we have at hand right now is the greatest opportunity we've ever had in human history to improve everything we did wrong and bring everybody up to speed on the progress and the quality of life that every human deserves to be having here on this earth. So in terms of coastal communities, those are some of the main solutions building resilient infrastructure, implementing nature-based solutions, relocation or retreat, but also focusing on social and economic policies to bridge the gap of the opportunities and the different things that these communities can do to progress despite the impact of the climate crisis. Juan, thank you for your valuable insights. And Joshua, I know you think a lot about technology and innovation, and you have worked on issues in the energy transition. Could you share some examples of innovative technologies that are currently being developed or deployed that are helping communities adapt to climate change? There are definitely technologies out there that I'm bullish on, particularly in clean energy. Um, and I'll say a little bit about that, but I also kind of want to take this in a, in a different direction. Juan mentioned social and development policy and addressing inequities. And I think really to get there, a lot of what we need today is more what I would call system level innovations. And those are out there and they're certainly happening. I think a lot of adaptation in communities starts by building resilience and systems and so I think a lot about how we can use policy to create an environment that can help promote and enable innovation to thrive and do it quickly. I think in the U.S. right now, we're in this period of, of pretty dramatic spending to help deploy technologies and commercialize technologies that we have already that are focused on rapidly decarbonizing our energy grid, transportation, houses, and hopefully eventually heavy industry. And globally, communities are in very different positions than what we're facing here. So I think in particular, building in more redundancy in these systems to ensure that communities don't fail and don't or you know, aren't faced with having to relocate as a result of, of climate change is, is really where we should be focusing. And so I think three things that we can do to, to address this. First off, I think focusing more on not developing new innovations and new technologies, while I do think that's still something we should be keeping in mind, but scaling up what, what works already. So we know that one adaptation or mitigation approach is to get more renewable energy and get more households hooked up to, to renewable electricity. So in sub-Saharan Africa alone, less than half of the households currently have access to electricity. 
um, with rural households being roughly only 28%. So that's a pretty significant number of households that we have a chance to help just leapfrog technology and get them connected to a renewable grid. It's a huge opportunity to improve quality of life, get people access to clean electricity. And this is really, we have technologies to do this already. So it's more about figuring out what these systems level innovations are to help rapidly increase the way that we're scaling up and deploying existing technologies like small-scale solar, solar mini grids, wind, even hydrogen technologies already exist. So really it's just about figuring out how to deploy them and deploy them rapidly and ensuring that there are resources to do that. Secondly, uh, I think Juan has kind of been hit, hitting at this all along, but that adaptation really is, is hyper-local. So it's happening in communities everywhere, but it is also somewhat ubiquitous in that communities everywhere are, are experiencing different levels of climate change. So we need better methods and ways of helping understand what's working and sharing across institutions to ensure that policies are being decided on with the best data possible, grounded in what's actually working out there in communities. The RCT revolution in, in global development and development economics has contributed volumes and volumes of insights on what works in poverty alleviation, global health, et cetera. But despite the level of investment that we've put into those, little of that evidence actually makes it into policy and how policymakers make decisions about where they're investing. So I think we need new methods of helping policymakers intake evidence and increase how we fund based on results of what's working. So increasing how we make decisions with evidence, but in addition to that, increasing the, the speed at which we can have and access data in more agile waves that helps us understand what works. The pace of change in climate, we're not keeping up with it in our institutions. And the more we deploy technology further to the point, we're not gonna be able to keep up with knowing about what's working and what's not working. And this should be guiding how we're actually investing and guiding how we're making decisions in institutions. And then thirdly, and, and somewhat related, I think we need to be investing more in more creative policies that can actually help mobilize resources. And again, these are things that we already have blueprints and, and, and know how to do. So back to systems innovation. So thinking about what are more creative cross-sectoral partnerships that could bring together private sector, public sector, and social inst academic institutions to address particular problems. So creative partnerships like Power Africa, which was spearheaded by USAID and the World Bank in Southern Africa, helped dramatically lower the cost of energy. It's a, a signature example, but we haven't created more partnerships like that. I found myself asking why since the beginning of this Biden administration, why we aren't investing in more of these kinds of partnerships because they work. So how might we leverage more creative partnership models like Power Africa that bring together multi-sector interests and help align policy levers around them? So, and then as we're thinking about where to invest resources, thinking about ways in which money can be mobilized to help stimulate demand in markets and potentially changing the way that we fund things based more on outcomes. So how can we use federal procurement or say USAID awards to help stimulate demand for new kinds of technologies so that it kind of bears some of the risk that and helps incentivize private equity and other forms of capital to invest in things that help 
support communities in the transition, something that the Biden administration has championed out of the State Department called the First Movers Coalition is a good example. Um, it's a, a global initiative focused on harnessing the purchasing power of companies to decarbonize hard to abate industrial sectors. So that account for roughly 30% of global emissions. So things like aluminum and production of steel, aviation and aviation fuels, shipping, trucking, et cetera. So what they've been doing is trying to use something called an advanced market commitment, where getting corporations to basically agree in advance to pre-purchase up to a certain percentage of industrial materials um, within these certain industries that helps stimulate providers to shift to zero or zero carbon solution, near zero or zero carbon solutions, so that it helps transition these technologies and promote carbon removal much more quickly. So investing in these types of procurement and demand market shaping mechanisms at the policy level can help rapidly shift industry to come around and 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 start to and we'll start to see more emissions reduction much more quickly. Thank you, Joshua. And finally, how do both of you see the field of sustainable development evolving in the next coming years? And what are some of the emerging trends and challenges that you anticipate? And how can we prepare ourselves to address them? So I believe that it is clear that we cannot longer talk about development and global progress without including the climate variable. So climate change and climate resilient development will remain a central focus or a central pillar of whatever that we do in development. Josh really hit it on the nail when he mentioned that, you know, we've spent so much money on RCTs, but the evidence from the RCTs are not going into policies. And the question is, why aren't they going into policies? And the reason they are not going into policies is because our so-called leaders are not interested in putting them into policy. Our so-called leaders keep putting profits over planet and nature. Our so-called leaders are more interested in winning the next, next election than actually climate-proofing their communities, climate-proofing their economies. So we really need a new generation of leaders. And I do hope that one of the new trends in global development is to go back to the soft skills. Because as Josh also mentioned, we have all the different technologies. We have all the different innovations. We have so much research out there that tell us what we actually need to do. However, the job is not getting done. And the job is not getting done, not because of lack of funding. The job is not getting done, not because we have lack of resources, but the job is not getting done because we don't have leaders with the spine to make the right decisions to take us to the finish line. So I do hope, and it is my wish that a new trend on global development is to go back to soft skills, to go back to leadership, actually push forward those leaders, especially young leaders that are committed to taking us to the finish line because at the end, our own future is at risk. Yes, I completely agree. And just to, to pick up on where Juan left off, I think a lot of what we've covered is kind of gets at a need for reforms and in institutions. And that starts with leaders being bold, being ambitious, and being willing to take some risks. I think it's inviting new kinds of people into institutions to think differently about what their job is and what they're designed to do. We have a tendency to create new things instead of fix what already exists. 
Um, and I think we have a lot of the infrastructure in place and institutions that are here that are designed to help communities respond to the most existential threats of our time, but they're not doing it quickly enough. And that starts with having the right people with the right visions in place. Um, and I think some of that is also ensuring that people in decision-making roles actually understand the tools that they have at their disposal to try to drive progress. So some of those things I mentioned around thinking about how we can better leverage resources, leverage dollars to stimulate markets. Um, and then some of the trends I would anticipate, I think there's there's quite a bit of interest now. I mean, some of the technology exists, but we're really focused on uh, industrial decarbonization. So how can we bring down emissions from things like cement where, where there might not yet be technologies that exist to produce um, low carbon cement, low carbon steel. What does the future of, you know, say things like direct air capture look like? Um, we're doing that a lot right now. We're investing in these direct air capture hubs in the United States, um, but those are focused on CO2. When, when do we start thinking about other things like methane? And then just more broadly, I think to return to, to something we touched on earlier of, of thinking about uh, solutions across a, a bit of a innovation pipeline, um, not losing sight of where we still might need to invest today for future solutions. Because you know today we're only we're realizing the benefits of investments that were made in the last twenty years. So we can't lose sight of of what's helped us get here in terms of having solutions that that can actually be deployed. And so continuing to make some of those investments in in uh, early stage R&D and in developing new technologies that could eventually be deployed in the next 20 years. So investing in institutions and leadership and, and continuing to think about where there are opportunities to research and develop new technologies and solutions that we'll need in the next 20 years. Thank you, Joshua and Wan. It's great talking with you both. And thanks to Joshua and Wen for taking the time to talk with us today. You can learn more about the Center for International Development and CID's research events and upcoming events at cid.harvard.edu. Thanks for listening and we'll see you back soon.